Welcome to Faith of Our Fathers. Today we feature John Stott, described as the presumptive pope of the evangelicals, yet so little is known about the man who had won exceptional honors. In 2011, the evangelical world lost one of its greatest spokesmen, and I have lost one of my closest friends and advisors, said Billy Graham, paying tribute to the Reverend John Robert Walmsley Stott. Today, John Stott presents a study on the cross and the revelation of God. We come in this series of addresses entitled The Cross and the Christian to the second subject which I've entitled The Cross and the Revelation of God. It has always been a source of surprise to unbelievers, even sometimes of ridicule, that Christians should glory in the cross. To the Greeks and Romans in those early days, the cross was a symbol of shame. Cicero, for instance, said that the very name of the cross is absent, not only from the body of Roman citizens, but also from their minds, their eyes, and their ears. He said in another passage, it's not only having to endure such a fate that is intolerable for a Roman citizen and free man, so too is the mode of it, the anticipation, yes, the very mention of it. The whole idea of crucifixion was simply abhorrent to Romans. And there are many modern intellectuals who have an equal, although different, antipathy to the cross. If the death of Jesus reveals anything, they would say, it reveals only the senselessness of fate and the bestial savagery of men. But as we saw last week, the cross was neither an accident of blind fate, nor was it merely a crime of wicked men. It was an occurrence according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. According to the New Testament, therefore, the cross is to be viewed as a deed, not of fate or of men, but of God, something that God did in giving his Son and sending his Son to die. This being so, the cross must, in some measure, reveal God because it is in their deeds that people are most clearly revealed. It's what we do that reveals what we are, and in just the same way what God is, is seen supremely in what he has done. And since the cross is his greatest deed, it constitutes his clearest revelation. One of the ways in which this profound truth is expressed uh, is in the Gospel of John, in which the emphasis of Jesus is that the cross is his glorification. For instance, the Lord Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, referring to his crucifixion. Glory, of course, is the outward and visible manifestation of a thing, so that the glory of God has been defined as the outward shining of his inward being. To glorify, therefore, is to manifest. 
or in the words of the grim fair Greek lexicon, it is to cause the dignity and worth of some person or thing to become manifest and acknowledged. So when Jesus called his death his glorification, he meant that in it and by it he was going to be revealed. And when he prayed, Father, glorify thy Son, that thy Son also may glorify thee, he was expressing his desire that through the cross both the Father and the Son would be fully revealed by revealing one another. The cross then is a revelation of God. What then can we see of God in the cross? We can see four of his greatest attributes. First, the love of God. This is much insisted on in the New Testament, especially by the apostles John and Paul. Let me read you, for instance, two verses in the fourth chapter of the first epistle of John, 1 John 4, verses 9 and 10. In this was manifested the love of God toward us, because that God sent his only begotten Son into the world, that we might live through him. Herein is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Love, the love of God, is supremely made manifest in the gift and the death of his Son. Similarly, St. Paul in Romans 5 verse 8 wrote, God commends or proves his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. If we analyze these two passages and what the apostles John and Paul are saying in them, I think we shall find that it's this. Love is essentially self-giving. And the greatness of God's love or self-giving is seen in the cross in three elements. A. He gave his son, his only son. If God had merely sent a man or an angel or an archangel, he would have sent another person, a third person, a creature whom he had made, for that's what men and angels and archangels are. But in sending his son, begotten from his own being, God was not sending another person. He was giving himself. B. God sent his son to die. That is, he not only gave him, but he gave him to the uttermost, to be done to death by cruel and callous men, to be exposed to shame and scorn and spitting, to bear in his body our sin and judgment. See, God sent his son to die for undeserving sinners. We were his enemies who had rebelled against him and were under his righteous judgment because of our sin and rebellion. We deserved to eat the fruit of our wrongdoing, to perish for our sins. But God loved us in spite of our sin and guilt and gave his son to die for worthless sinners like us. Nobody whose eyes have been opened to see the cross can disbelieve or doubt the love of God. Oh, we may indeed be perplexed by many phenomena in the world today, by the ferocities of nature, 
by the apparently meaningless calamities of earthquake, pestilence, and flood, by the prevalence of sickness and sorrow, evil, pain, and death, by the sum total of the world's misery. But Christians learn to view these things in the light that streams from Calvary. We steadfastly refuse to contemplate these things apart from the cross. We know that these perplexities and calamities carry upon them a large and taunting question mark, but we insist on placing beside the question mark a cross, and when we, as it were, stamp upon these perplexities the mark of the cross, although they remain baffling mysteries, they are no longer insuperable obstacles to faith. Even in the midst of personal tragedy and bewilderment, is it not reasonable to trust a God who so loved us as to give his Son to die for us? The love of God. Secondly, we see in the cross a revelation of the justice of God. Let me turn you back from Romans chapter 3, uh, Romans chapter 5, to Romans chapter 3. Let me read you verses 24 to 26. Being justified freely by his grace, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God hath set forth to be a propitiation through faith in his blood, to declare his righteousness or justice, for the remission of sins that are past through the forbearance of God, to declare, I say, at this time his justice, that he might be just and the justifier of him who believes in Jesus. From these three very profound and pregnant verses, I would select just this one truth, that God set forth Jesus to be the propitiation for our sins, verse 25 at the end, in order to declare his justice. Verse 26 at the beginning, to declare, I say, at this time his justice. Now you notice the repetition of this phrase about the declaration of the justice or righteousness of God, and it's repeated, of course, for emphasis. The cross, then, is a declaration, a proof of the justice of God. There is in the cross a revelation of his justice as well as of his love and mercy. Now how is this so? Well, in verse 25 the apostle writes of the remission of sins that are past. This is a misleading expression in the authorized version because remission here refers not to God's forgiving of sins but to his passing them over, his overlooking them, or passing them by. Since the terrible judgment of the flood, God had not visited evil upon the evil doer. He had not inflicted on sinners the penalty which their sins deserved. He had passed them by. Why? Because God condones sin? No, indeed. Because he's guilty of injustice? No. Why then did God pass by the sins of former generations? Well, Paul gives the answer. It is through the forbearance of God. 
but now in the cross, if I may quote from the Revised Standard Version, because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins, now he has declared his justice. He has exacted the penalty of the very sins which he had previously passed over, and of all other sins beside. He laid their penalty on his dear son on the cross, or, if you prefer it put this way, for they are both true, he, God, has borne himself the penalty in the person of his dear son. No man can now accuse God of injustice. No man can accuse God of failing to uphold his holy laws or declining to judge sin as it deserves to be judged. Or it's true that he temporarily passed by the sins of former generations, but now in the cross he has given evidence of his justice, both in the propitiatory death of Jesus in which he bore our sins and in his loving purpose to justify those who believe in Jesus as their sin-bearer and to justify no others but they. So far, then, we have seen in the cross the love of God for the sinner and the justice of God against sin. That brings me thirdly to the wisdom of God which is revealed in the cross. In Romans 11, verse 33, the apostle cries, O oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and the knowledge of God! How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out! By this time, the apostle has finished unfolding his mighty theme of salvation, by the death of God's Son and by the indwelling of God's Spirit. He has added three chapters about the place of the Jews in this scheme of salvation. And now as he looks back over what he has written, he is simply overcome by a sense of the infinite wisdom of God in the salvation of sinners. And he breaks out into this paean of praise, Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. The Apostle Paul reverts to this theme of divine wisdom uh, a few pages later in our Bibles in the first chapter of First Corinthians. He is well aware that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, especially to Greeks who are seeking wisdom, and I don't think we can easily understand how foolish, how incredibly foolish the cross seemed to people in the first century. A certain Celsus, who was a well-known um, virulent critic of the Christian faith, said in those early days scornfully, scathingly, that Christians were actually worshipping a dead man. They couldn't understand how the centre of Christian worship was someone who died and that on a cross. To Celsus and to others it was simply ludicrous that a dead Messiah was the object of Christian worship. But although the cross was foolishness to those who were perishing, to those who were called, both Jews and Greeks, verse 24, Christ, the power of God, and the wisdom of God. You see, 
the wisdom of God in Christ crucified. Now what did Paul mean in what sense is the wisdom of God displayed in the cross? Paul doesn't explain uh, what he meant, how the wisdom of God is revealed in the cross, but I think we can deduce it from the rest of his teaching. It is in the perfect concurrence at the cross of the love of God and the justice of God that the wisdom of God is seen. God has devised a way of salvation which is not only perfectly adapted to man's abysmal need in his sins, but is perfectly consistent also with God's own nature of love and justice. If scripture reveals anything about God, it is that he is always true to himself. The omnipotence of God does not mean that God is able to do absolutely anything whatsoever. The omnipotence of God means that he's able to do absolutely anything which is consistent with his nature to do. There is one thing, therefore, that God cannot do, and that is he cannot deny himself. 2 Timothy 2 verse 13. He cannot act in a way that is contrary or false to his nature. A positive way in which the scripture expresses this same truth is to say that God always satisfies himself. God will not and therefore cannot suppress or restrain any part of his perfect being. To do so will be to destroy his perfection. And so God satisfies his wrath in judging sinners, and he satisfies his love in saving sinners. And God has planned the salvation of sinners in such a way as to satisfy both his justice and his love, not satisfying one at the expense of the other, but satisfying both completely and concurrently. As we look at the cross, we see the love of God in giving his Son for sinners. And we see the justice of God in giving his Son to die for sinners. Yes, dying the very death which sinners deserve to die. And as we see the holy love and the loving justice of God concurrently in the cross, we too can cry out, Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and the knowledge of God. The love of God, the justice of God, the wisdom of God. And fourthly, we see revealed in the cross the power of God. The cross is not just an objective display of the love of God and the justice of God and the wisdom of God so that we view them from afar and admire them and worship them. No, no, this display of God's love and justice and wisdom in the cross had a precise and practical purpose, and that purpose is the salvation of sinners. And in this mighty saving achievement of the cross, the power of God is seen. Of course, we know very well that the unbeliever sees in the cross a pathetic display of weakness, not power. The unbeliever sees a poor, feeble, defenseless Jesus 
overcome by the power of men's envy, greed, and malice, and crushed by the relentless might of Rome. But the believer sees something very different in the cross from that. The believer sees not weakness and tragedy, but power and triumph. The believer sees in the cross not a failure, but a glorious and decisive victory in the salvation of sinners. Thus, if I may take you back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 17, Christ sent me to preach the gospel, not with wisdom of words, lest the cross of Christ be deprived of its power. For the preaching of the cross is to them that are perishing foolishness, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see the power of God in the cross. Again, verses 23 and 24, we preach Christ crucified, to the Jews a stumbling block, to the Greeks foolishness, but unto those who are called, Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. There is then the power of God in Christ crucified, and this power of God in the cross is the power of God unto salvation. There is no sin so black that it cannot be washed white by the blood of the Lamb. There is no sinner so lost in the far country that he cannot be fetched home and reconciled to God by the power of the cross. There is no sin so deeply ingrained in human nature that it cannot be conquered by the virtue of the cross of Jesus. Oh, the power of the cross to save. The cross brings forgiveness to the guilty and peace to the conscience-stricken, deliverance to the captive and victory to the defeated, relief to the burdened, rest to the weary, courage to the suffering, confidence to the dying, and comfort to the bereaved. The cross, it takes our guilt away. It holds the fainting spirit up. It cheers with hope the gloomy day and sweetens every bitter cup. It makes the coward spirit brave and nerves the feeble arm for fight. It takes its terror from the grave and gilds the bed of death with light. The balm of life, the cure of woe, the measure and the pledge of love, the sinner's refuge here below, the angel's theme in heaven above. Let me summarize then what we have learned. When you look at the cross, what do you see? Do you only see man's inhumanity to man? Or do you see God? If God opens your eyes when you look at the cross, you will see a mighty revelation of God. You will see the love of God, unfathomable love, in the gift of his Son to die for worthless sinners. You will see the justice of God. Because of the forbearance of God in passing by former sins, he now lays upon his Son the iniquity of us all, making him to be sin and a curse for us. You see the wisdom of God as he perfectly expresses and satisfies both his justice against sin and his love for the sinner 
and you see the power of God unto salvation to every sinner who believes. How then shall we conclude? Well, we've been considering the cross and the revelation of God. We've seen that the cross is the most luminous revelation of God that there has ever been in history. Brighter rays of divine glory stream from the cross than from anywhere else in the universe. We can learn more of God by meditating on the cross of Jesus than from all the philosophies of the world. If we've seen God thus revealed in Christ crucified, what then? Well, two things in conclusion. First, we must trust him. We must trust this God revealed in Christ crucified. We look around at the vastness of the universe, at the chaos of the world, at the pains and the griefs of men, and maybe in our own lives, and we are tempted to doubt. We are tempted to doubt the love of God. God doesn't care about me, we say. We're tempted to doubt the justice of God. It isn't fair, we cry. We're tempted to doubt the wisdom of God. It just doesn't make sense, we say. Or we're tempted to doubt the power of God. Why doesn't God do something, we ask? Well, we need to look away from what appears superficially to be unkind or unfair or unwise or incompetent. And we need to look at the cross. Feast your eyes on that lonely figure, God the Son who dies for sinners like us. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. See this historical evidence for the love and the justice and the wisdom and the power of God. Doubt these things no longer. Trust him who has thus revealed himself in Christ crucified to men. That's the first conclusion. We must trust him. And the second is we must worship him. Hold nothing back from this God. Bring him your homage without reserve. His infinite perfections are revealed in the cross, and they deserve nothing less than our complete homage. His grace towards our sinners, who deserve judgment at his hand, but have received mercy, cries out for our humble gratitude. Let us worship him. Let us fall at his feet and adore him. God revealed in Christ crucified. You've been listening to John Stott. Listen to Faith of Our Fathers each Saturday and Sunday to hear more great 20th century preachers.